Sophia Hall. I'm a supervising attorney at Lawyers for Civil Rights. For those of you that are not familiar with us, LCR is a civil rights nonprofit law firm. We've existed in the Boston area for more than 53 years now, and we provide free legal representation and support to communities of color and immigrant communities that experience discrimination. And I am Pam Wilmot. I am executive director of Common Cause Massachusetts. We are a national nonpartisan nonprofit that advocates for free and fair elections and open and accountable government. Uh, we do both advocacy and um, organizing and a wide range of tactics to achieve those goals. And very pleased that you're here today. People are really still joining. Um, so uh, if you missed the beginning, you, we will do questions and answers at the end, but you can do um, in the, use the Q&A chat function and we'll try to figure out uh, an answer to your question in a timely manner. So just Q&A at the bottom and uh, very pleased to have you here today. So as people are entering the room, I'm just going to share our screen so that our presentation is up. So for those of you that are with us today, we are going to be talking about Massachusetts election protection. If that's not what you're here for, you're in the wrong room. <laughs> so it's time to leave. <laughs> For those of you that are not yet familiar with election protection as a national program, I wanna talk a little bit about our history, who we are, what we're doing and why. But I wanna start with sort of giving you my fundamental understanding of why I do this work, right? So as a civil rights lawyer, what I know is that the crown jewel of all civil rights is the ability to participate in the democratic process. Without that, there are no other rights. I also fundamentally believe that I want to live in a world and I would like Massachusetts to be a state that recognizes that voting should be as easy as breathing. We're not there yet. We're working hard and lots of democratic advocacy groups are working hard to make sure that we get there, but we still have some work to do. And that's one of the reasons why election protection is such a critically important program. So for those of you who have never volunteered with election protection in the past, let me tell you a little bit about the program itself. Election protection is the nation's largest nonpartisan voter protection campaign. It began in 2000 after the Bush-Gore debacle, and it started as a program that only operated on election day during the presidential election. It has now grown to be a national effort that operates year round and on election day, we will see 32 states with programs on their ground, on the ground, as well as hotlines operating. As of September 1st, the national hotline had already received 80,000 calls from voters who were looking for help with troubleshooting issues. And what I've been told is that in the last few days, our hotline has received more than 1,100 calls a day. This is a huge program. It's not something that just one organization can put together. It's a, a real Herculean task and it's done by a coalition of partners to make sure that you have the proper support and management that you need to be able to help voters on election day. Our primary election protection coalition partners are Lawyers for Civil Rights, Common Cause of Massachusetts, the Anti-Defamation League, the League of Women Voters, ACLU of Massachusetts, and MassVote. So we're gonna talk a little bit about some of the uh, Massachusetts election laws that you should be aware of, some of the issues and scenarios that you may encounter as a volunteer. Pam is going to jump in and help me along the way for information that she wants to make sure you understand. But what I want to get across to everyone is that this is a robust program that has a really significant safety net. You're not alone. You will not be ever operating in a vacuum or a silo you will always have the support of lots of resources to be able to troubleshoot issues. You will always have the support of a lead, a person to call and contact, particularly in a field program who will be responsible for the city where you're located. You'll always have the support of a command center where Pam and I will be throughout the day to be able to troubleshoot systemic issues. So know that 
We won't cover all the topics. We won't cover all the questions. You may get a question that you haven't seen before, but you will have the support you need to be able to answer it. So some common issues that we encounter on election day are questions around voter registration status, many questions around polling location, and we anticipate seeing even more of these because we've had more polling location changes with this election in response to COVID. There are questions around proper timing, when should the polls open and close, questions related to voter ID, accessibility issues, electioneering, and of course, this year with our brand new vote by mail system, we are likely to have lots of people who are confused about what to do with their vote by mail ballots. So we'll talk about that. Here are just some of the questions that might be posed to you on election day. What time can I vote? Where can I vote? What ID do I bring? What does it mean if I'm inactive? What do I do if there's a broken machine? Where do I drop that vote by mail ballot? I haven't gotten my mail-in ballot. What do I do? I've never received it, but it says it's on the way. What do I do? And we'll troubleshoot those questions and more. So we're going to start with the time of the day, because for many of you who are volunteering as either hotline or field volunteers, you are going to be operating on the exact same shift. And later we'll talk more about shifts and assignments, but know that there are four shifts throughout the day. We start our program at 630 in the morning. 30 minutes before the polls open, and we operate until 38.30 in the evening, about 30 minutes after the polls close. One of the most common questions we get from people are what time are the polls going to open? Under Massachusetts state law, polls are required to be open by 7 o'clock a.m., meaning if you are a field volunteer or you are a hotline volunteer and you receive a call and it is 7.05 and the polling center is not open, that is absolutely something that should be escalated to your captain, your lead, or to the command center for us to address. Similarly, if you are in the last shift of the day, it is very common for individuals to come to a polling location late. Perhaps they're working that day or they needed to get a sitter with their kids. They come to the polling location, it's a quarter to eight, they see a long line, and they feel as though they need to leave because they'll never make it through that line in 45 minutes, excuse me, in 15 minutes, and they know that the polling location will close at eight. By having volunteers on the ground, you can make sure to tell people that, yes, the polling locations close at eight. However, so long as you are in line by eight o'clock, you have the right to vote, no matter how long it takes. And in fact, you're required to be given five minutes to be able to complete your ballot. Because you're there and because you have that information, you may be the difference between a voter leaving or casting a meaningful, meaningful ballot. I do want to tell you guys that more often than not, probably 50% of the questions that you are going to troubleshoot for people on election day is going to be a multi-part question that basically relates back to the comment, the poll worker says, I'm not in the book. <laughs> and what does that mean and how do you fix it? It's very possible that there are a lot of things happening for that voter. You are going to know how to troubleshoot all of those issues. It might be that that voter is not properly registered. It might be that that, poll, that voter is not at the appropriate polling location. The voter might have an issue where they've recently moved. The voter might be inactive. It's possible that none of these things might be the case. And then you may need to talk about provisional ballots. So let's start at the beginning. There is a handy dandy registration lookup tool that the Secretary of the Commonwealth puts out. You guys will all get these slides after the presentation and I highly recommend that you take this link and you bookmark it in your smartphones because more often than not, you're going to be using this tool during your voter, um, your voter or volunteer shift. One thing that I'll tell you, and I'm going to go ahead and put my information into this tool and on the next slide, you're gonna see all of the helpful information it provides. But this tool is helpful for more than just registration status. It also tells information about polling locations and it provides information about whether a voter has active or inactive status. So this is what you will see once you put in the voter's information. Here you can see myself, Sophia Hall, and you can see that I am in fact registered to vote. If you look below the blue box that says my state election ballot, you can see where my polling location is. And if you look above the blue uh, my state election ballot box, you can see an area that says voting status and then in red writing active. 
those are the three things that are likely going to be helpful pieces of information to troubleshoot for that voter. Here, what you at least know is that even if the voter was told that they were not in the poll book, they are in fact registered to vote. You'll also know from this website whether or not that voter is in the correct place. Again, I want to note that there have been some significant changes with polling locations due to COVID. That information has only come in very recently, uh, but many polling locations have changed in order to be able to create enough social distancing space for individuals to vote safely, as well as to alter locations, particularly those that might have previously been public housing or elderly housing units or schools. We're also going to talk a little bit more about how to troubleshoot that active or inactive status. Here's another option for if you're just trying to look up a polling location for a voter or to assist them to find their polling location. But remember, the registration lookup tool allows you to do both of those things in one place. So before we get to inactive or active status, let's say a voter approaches you and tells you, I'm not sure whether or not I can vote here. This used to be my polling location, but I just moved. Here's the process that you need to go through with your voter. Although the law does ask for all voters to update their registration status every time they move, it's possible that the registration deadline is passed or that the move is so recent that the voter themselves has not been able to update that information. If a voter has moved within six months and they have not updated their voter registration to reflect their new address, they are legally allowed to vote at their prior polling location, okay? This is going to be really important for us on November 3rd because as many of you know, the statewide eviction moratorium has recently ended. People are struggling with housing stabilization based off losing jobs, based off losing family and loved ones and people who help provide for their stability and income. So we might see more people who have very recently moved than we've ever seen before. So it's really important to keep in mind that six month rule. A few slides ago, I showed you in the red writing where it showed that I was an active voter. If an individual is inactive, what does that mean? Generally speaking, it means that an individual has not responded to their local city or town census, sometimes they call it a town survey or a street survey, in two consecutive years. And at that point, a voter has been indicated as inactive. Generally speaking, that registration lookup tool will show you that font in green, I believe, if they're inactive. If an individual is deemed inactive and your polling location is still using a paper book, very often, the individuals who are inactive are not in that primary registration polling book. They're in a secondary book. So that voter that came to you and said, hey, I went into this polling location and the poll worker told me that I'm not on the roll, it's very possible that what happened was that that poll worker forgot to look in that secondary book and that the individual is in fact registered to vote, is in fact in the proper location, they just simply forgot to find their information in that secondary book because they are inactive. If you are an inactive voter, this is one of the very few circumstances in which they may ask you to present ID. We're going to talk about what is an ID, what satisfies the ID requirements in a moment. But what's important to know is that if you're an inactive voter and they find your name in that secondary book, they may ask you to present your ID. And it's possible that if you can't provide your ID, that they are going to request that you complete a challenge ballot. A challenge ballot is one in which you sign and provide contact information, as well as the poll worker who's challenging that ballot. That is not the same thing as a provisional ballot. A challenge ballot counts on election day, unlike a provisional ballot, which we are going to talk about again just a little bit later. I want to take a step here and stop for a moment just because this is a fairly complicated process and I just want to see if Pam wants to add anything to make sure this information is clear. No, I think you, as always, are doing a great job of explaining it. I would say because we're doing roving poll monitoring and are outside of um, the polling places for our, our system this year, as opposed to being inside, you'll get less of this. And the hotline also tends to get a little less than when we were inside of polling places. 
So it is complicated. Poll workers get it wrong all the time and you do not have to be an expert. That's what the, you know, the hotline, the captains and all the rest. And you'll learn more about that later in the training. So we brought up this idea, idea of an ID, right? And I told you that there are very few circumstances in which a poll worker can request that you have to produce identification. Before we get to those circumstances, let's talk about what we mean when we say ID. I do not want any of our volunteers to have the misbelief that an ID is just a traditional form of identification, such as a driver's license or a state ID. While those things do satisfy our state requirement for an identification to be able to vote, we also have a really extensive and broad definition of identification in Massachusetts. In Massachusetts, any document that has your name and the address to where you are registered can satisfy the identification requirement. So if you are outside of a polling location, engage with the voter and ask them about their voting experience and they say to you, you know, I couldn't vote. I didn't have a form of ID when they asked me for it. You can help them think about all the other possible pieces of documentation that they might have with them to use to vote, such as a utility bill, rent receipt or lease, a copy of their voter registration affidavit, basically any documentation at all that they may have, including let's say they drive their car there, maybe in their dash they have a copy of their GEICO car insurance, and that has their name and address on it. You really have to think creatively, but know that the law gives a lot of leeway here, but a voter wouldn't necessarily know that. This isn't intuitive to them. And so you might be the reason why they turn around and are able to vote that day because you give them this information. And then it's very possible that if a poll worker asks for the identification, a voter has absolutely no access to anything that might satisfy the requirement. Even still, that voter should be allowed to vote provisionally. That's always gonna be our last resort and we're gonna to talk to you more about why that is soon. So we talked about what an ID was. Now we wanna talk about when they can ask for an ID. In Massachusetts, there are very few circumstances in which you can be asked to produce an identification at the polls. One is if this is the very first time you've voted in Massachusetts. This is particularly important for our young people that are going to vote. In Massachusetts, we know that 16-year-olds can register to vote, but they can't actually engage in the voting process until they're 18. So if this is their first time at the polls, they are very likely to be asked to show identification. Individuals who are inactive, what we talked about before, people who had not completed their local town census or survey in the last two consecutive years, may be asked for ID. If for any reason you're casting a provisional or a challenge ballot, you may be asked for ID. And if a poll worker has reasonable suspicion, you might be asked for ID. I recognize that the lawyer in us has our spidey senses going off when we hear something suspicious, like a poll worker has reasonable suspicion. But what I can tell you in practice of doing election protection, we have never really had anybody call into the hotline or report to our volunteers that this has been used. I just want you to be aware that under the law, there is in fact this piece, this component of the law that allows for a poll worker to ask for ID if they have a reasonable suspicion. So we talked a little bit about provisional ballots. We've said it a few times as we talked about different scenarios that you might have to troubleshoot. And so I wanna just be clear about why we say that provisional ballots are the ballot of last resort. Provisional ballots are basically fail-safe ballots. They're not counted on election day the local election officials are required to be able to resolve the issues to determine whether or not a provisional ballot counts within three days of an election. But what does that really mean in practice? What it means in practice is that we have a lot of administrative work that needs to happen after the scenes. And we have to in fact trust that we have enough staff and resources for all the clerks to be able to resolve all the issues in the right way. More often than not, as you many of you know, we are seeing projections of the outcome of elections on election night, maybe in the wee hours of the next morning. We may very well not see that this election cycle, but those provisional ballots are not counting within those projections. So they really are, if an individual is intending to be able to cast a meaningful ballot that they know counts on election day, a provisional ballot just doesn't meet that bill. 
And so we really want to try to do everything we can to troubleshoot situations as best as possible to avoid them having to vote on a provisional ballot rather than a traditional ballot. And unfortunately in Massachusetts, we do see a widespread use of sort of the pushing of provisional ballots on voters. And we really wanna to try to push back against that if there is a possibility, if a voter has the right to be able to vote on a traditional ballot. So real quickly, this is something I think is important, particularly for our volunteers who are going to just be observing from their car, who are not comfortable engaging with voters on the ground outside of the polling location. There are some really significant accessibility issues that we care a lot about. We really care about tracking this data because we want to be able to provide information in the future that addresses policy change and potentially makes legislative change. In Massachusetts, if you are disabled, you should still be able to access a polling center and vote. All of the equipment that you require, all of the accessibility accommodations that you require are legally required to be given for you. So the places that you are roving, driving by, if you can tell that there's no ramps, that the doorways are very narrow. In prior years, if you were inside, you might have noticed that there's just no way for a wheelchair to necessarily get around for a person to vote. You might have known that they don't have equipment that are there for people who are visually impaired. All of those things would have been instances that you should report to your lead, your captain, or your command center because we want to very quickly address them. Um, I even remember a year when one of the biggest complaints I heard at 7 a.m. in the morning was that there were a couple of polling sites with absolutely no handicap parking anywhere near the polling location. And there were a lot of people who just couldn't figure out how to vote because they couldn't get there. And that was one of the things that we were able to troubleshoot with Secretary Galvin's office to be able to resolve. Similarly, accessibility is not just about disabilities, right? We also have many people in the Commonwealth who do not speak English as a first language. Although some of you may know the Voting Rights Act does require certain cities and towns to provide translated services and materials to voters, that's not all cities and towns. It's actually a fairly small number. And that is based off census data that is now about 10 years old. When we have our new census, they will update that list for individual cities and towns that should provide translation services. But again, we're thinking about the real world and we're thinking about a world that is increasingly becoming gentrified. More and more local neighborhood movement is happening. Communities change. And so it's very likely that the community that needs to vote at a polling location is a city in which is not legally required to provide those translation services. Now, a city might just do it anyway, and that's a great thing. But in the event that they don't, we need to make sure that voters know that they are allowed to take anyone of their choice into a polling location with them to assist them in reading their ballot. So what do I mean? I mean, my little abuelita, my little Spanish grandma, gets to take her six-year-old granddaughter, her next-door neighbor, anyone that she chooses with her to the polls to make sure that she has the ability to complete her ballot and submit that ballot. One question that we always get every year is, you know, what do I do if I see a bunch of people outside of the polls and they are like really pushing on me campaign pamphlets or signs about a particular candidate or a particular ballot issue? I really wanna to note to you guys that this is not a high priority issue for election protection. That said, there is a threshold in which it's really important that you contact us. If there is electioneering that is violating the 150 foot buffer zone, meaning they are closer than 150 feet from the polling location door, that, and voters are feeling intimidated, voters are feeling like they wanna leave because they can't stand comfortably and wait for their right to be able to vote, that is something you should certainly report to your lead, your captain, or the command center. So let's talk about mail-in ballots, right? So we have our brand new vote by mail system, but as all new things, it's a fairly imperfect system. And so we have to know what the requirements are for voters on election day. So on election day, if an individual has not yet mailed their vote by mail ballot, and they come to you and they're asking questions about it. We are going to highly recommend that you do not encourage them to mail it on election day. Rather, 
you encourage them to find an official Dropbox, and there's a link on this uh, slide so that you can identify the closest Dropbox, and they submit it in the Dropbox before 8 p.m. on election day. Alternatively, if that voter is comfortable, that voter should choose to vote in person on that day rather than try to mail their vote by mail ballot. Again, it just gives them more security in ensuring that their ballot, their ballot is going to be timely received and that it's going to count. Now let's say we have a voter who is adamant. No, I absolutely want to mail my ballot. What does the law say? Then it says a vote by mail ballot will count if two things are satisfied. The vote by mail ballot is postmarked by November 3rd and received before five o'clock on Friday, November 6th. Why is this important? It's important because for that voter, you need to send them into a post office they need to make sure their voting, uh, their vote by mail ballot is postmarked, and then they have to cross their fingers and hope that it's received timely. Those are all a lot of possibilities and unknowns that we would love our voters to have to, to be able to avoid if possible, because it gives them more assurance that their vote is going to count. But if your voter wants that information, we want to make sure that you have it to give to them. We get a lot of questions from people about what if I requested a mail-in ballot, but I've decided I want to vote in person? Can I do that? So there are a couple of different situations here. Maybe you requested your mail-in ballot, you submitted your application for a ballot, but it never came. You are entitled to vote in person. Maybe you're trying to track your ballot to see whether or not it was received, and the Track Your Ballot website, which is also here on this slide, a link for you, indicates that your ballot was not received or was rejected. You can again vote in person. So at this point, we're gonna transition a little bit from state law to talking a little bit about logistics. As many of you know, this year with the pandemic, everything about life is kind of just different. And one of the things that we want to get across to you is that election protection is also different. We are still operating our hotline, but we're not all together in a call center at Wilmer Hill anymore. We are all working from our home in our living room, trying to make sure that voters have the information they need. Our field program at bare minimum is a mobile field program for volunteers who are not comfortable engaging with others, they're going to be operating from their cars. And we've added a whole new component to election protection that's operated by Common Cause, a really cool program that does exactly what we do on the ground and by phone, but does it in the virtual universe over a dozen or so platforms to be able to correct misinformation and disinformation. So I always get the question, so let me try to hedge you off. We do in fact have shifts. If you are a voter, a volunteer who has not yet received your shift, you're not alone. That's everybody because we haven't gotten them out yet. But I do guarantee that you will get an election day shift at least one week prior to the election. We have four shifts no matter what program you're in, specifically talking about hotline or field. And those four shifts, again, start at 6.30 in the morning, 7, 30 minutes before the 7 o'clock time of the opening of the polls and they go until 30 minutes after the polls are supposed to be open. For those of you who just want the information, know again that you are part of a huge microcosm here. You're not working alone. In addition to our statewide hotline that we answer, 866-OUR-VOTE, we also have partners all over the country who are providing the same service in other languages. So we have a Spanish uh, hotline, we have a hotline that operates in multiple Asian languages, and an Arabic hotline. One thing that I just want to share with everybody is that despite the need to feel like you have to do everything and fix everything on election day, your role as a volunteer is pretty narrow. You are going to be assisting voters and recording data. On the hotline, you're going to be recording that data in an online system called Our Vote Live. And on the ground, you're going to be recording that data either in a JOT form or on a paper intake form, and you'll learn more about that soon.
talk very specifically about the volunteers who are working on the hotline. At this point, if you are working on the hotline, you should have received an email from me about snagging your election day hotline shift. If you have any questions about that, you can email me directly and the BBA will help me send out an email after this program with these materials, as well as my contact information. So as I said earlier, the hotline looks a little different this year. We're not all together in a call center. We are virtual working from our homes, but you're not alone. Again, you're working within this huge microcosm of a program and our hotline ships are all gonna be connected by Zoom so that you can have access to your captain and your fellow volunteer folks <laughs> that are working on your shift. The calls now will not come in over the phone. They're gonna come in through your computer through a cloud-based system called um, iPure, Pure Cloud, excuse me. <laughs> you can tell that I have yet to become familiar with all of these new programs because they're very, very new for all of us, but you will continue to track this information in our vote live. People always actually ask for a script and what we do at least provide for you are a few bullet points of what you should do with every call. Here you're gonna see Rose who's operating from her home office and just as Rose is doing, you should be doing. Thank you for calling election protection. My name is Rose. Can I please have your phone number? You ask for the phone number because you wanna call them back but also because it's the way that you initiate a ticket or sort of the beginning process for collecting data in our vote live. And then you want to ask the person about name, contact information, and what sort of issue they're facing. Our Vote Live has in itself its own sort of systems that you have to work out. And what I am going to do is send all of you uh, a couple of links to look at a demo so that you know exactly how to operate Our Vote Live. Even though it's a little old school, it works for our purposes. And the most important thing for you to know here is that Doing it fast is not better than doing it right. We're really looking for our volunteers to capture enough detailed information so that we can do two things. We can follow up on election day to give people the support they need in real time to resolve their problems and let them cast their ballot. We're also trying to track this information so that we know trends, so that we are able to be able to give really strong feedback to the Commonwealth about policy change and legislative changes that should be happening throughout Massachusetts. This is just a quick image of what an open ticket looks like in our vote live for a volunteer. And as I mentioned, you can see, you start this ticket by entering the phone number of the volunteer, excuse me, of the voter. So this looks really overwhelming and I don't intend for it to be, it's just an example, but I want you to take away two things from this image. One is that, again, you are a volunteer within a huge microcosm of a system. You have a lot of support. You are not functioning alone in a silo. When you look at this flowchart, this work chart, and you look at the blue box on the top to the, to the left, a voter reports a question concern to the hotline. And below that, you look at the very first white box to the left that says, call as a basic question. In that scenario, which is going to be probably 85% of your situations as a hotline volunteer, you are going to answer that voter's problem, address the issue, close the ticket, done deal, move on to your next call. As you slide to the right to the next white box, it says call is a complex question, meaning maybe you don't know the answer or maybe you just want some support and feedback to make sure you're giving the right type of answer. And in that scenario, you are going to call over your captain. As you'll see one level below, the area where there is a white box and a green box next to it. In that situation, the captain may be able to give you the answer you need, and then the ticket's going to close, and then you're gonna move on to your next call. But if for some reason, this is an emergency, it's a systemic issue, or the captain is not clear about what should happen, that captain's gonna to go to the command center where Pam and I and others will be to troubleshoot any sort of systemic issues or emergency issues that need to be brought to the attention of Secretary Galvin's office. That's all you need to know about this work chart. As a hotline volunteer, those are the people you're going to talk to and that's the support you're going to get to be able to deal with every single question that comes along. What I wanna tell you about your captains are. 
For the hotline, every single hotline shift will have two captains. One shift is even going to have three captains. And your captains are people who have already done this. They have participated on the national hotline for at least three different shifts. So they've logged more than 10 hours as a volunteer on the national hotline. And they've done a training as a captain, meaning they've already overseen a team and provided the support they needed on a hotline. So your captains are going to be very comfortable with these systems. They're going to know how to support you and how to help you with all of the information that you need. Hey guys, um, so we've been getting a little bit of questions back and forth about logistics for getting um, assignments, et cetera, and the hotline. So just, just to be a little bit, we have a number of channels that people may have signed up to do election protection. And Sophia is 100% coordinating the, uh, the, the hotline volunteers Common Cause has a lot of mobile field um, volunteers, as does Lawyers Committee and the ACLU and other partners. So um, I'm going to take us through a little bit about the mobile field program, and we can also at the end get through some of these questions if people still have them. I've been trying to keep up with uh, the Q&A in the chat, but it's great to have so many questions as we've been going along. Um, next slide. So, um, so we will distribute your shifts uh, in uh, kind of the same decentralized fashion. I think Sophia is trying to get her folks assigned over the weekend. And uh, we will be a little bit later than that. It will be by the end of next week. You will have also, along with that, all the materials that you need to be an effective mobile volunteer. Um, if you have done this in the past, we have assigned you with a partner to cover a number of uh, polling places. We will not be doing that this year because of COVID-19. And there are a number of other changes that we'll go through as we go through this part of the presentation. Unless the only time we'll assign you is if you've made a request to be with a spouse or some other person that is close to you, then we will assign you in teams but otherwise you're solo this year. Next slide. So what should you bring? Um, one, you need to make sure that you have uh, information that designates you as an election protection uh, volunteer. And that can be a t-shirt. We do also have yarn signs that you can put up at polling places. We have car magnets if you're roving around to put on your car. Um, we also do require that all volunteers wear face masks. Um, some of us are distributing even gloves. Uh, I am not, I don't think we're all requiring that. Hand sanitizer, we want to make sure that, you know, you are uh, observing COVID protocols, staying six feet away. We'll go into that a little bit more. You also have the materials with you that you can, uh, can answer questions from um, the, the FAQ and others so that you can quickly look things up. We have a uh, intake form that will be primarily online this year. There is actually a training that we can send you about that separately. Um, it's in jot, jot form, but we also have paper backup for that. You do need a phone absolutely critically and frankly a uh it would be much better to have a smartphone so that you can look up these um addresses on the websites of the secretary of state when voters have questions about their voter registration status or their mail-in ballot status all the rest those things are really important and that will be also in the handout we'll give you you also need to make sure that you're going to be warm enough now this year you will have your car and so we are not requiring anyone to get out of their car, but you will be more effective if you can do that. But um, it's really, sometimes we, it, it has been very, very cold. We don't know what the, the uh, weather is gonna be. Make sure that you're, you're comfortable, have comfortable shoes, have snacks, uh, and have some extra paper and pens. Hand sanitize them frequently. Next slide, please. Um, what not to bring. 
uh, absolutely no designation uh, or of support for any candidate or ballot question or other kinds of uh, information. We want this to be election protection during your shift period. Now it's perfectly fine to volunteer for a ballot question or a candidate at another time, but you need to take off all of your election protection materials and not do it in on your shift. Um, all volunteers need to fill out a code of conduct form that acknowledges this nonpartisanship and also our COVID protocols, uh, as well as some um, other kinds of basic conduct. I think there, I don't, there isn't a hyperlink right now, but I think it will be, and we'll certainly send it to you so that you can fill it out. It's just a Google form, super easy. Um, a question, would it be okay to have my school-aged child with me? Yes, it would be, but remember social distancing. It's hard for children to do that. Uh, so um, it, it, it's, and, and will also be a little more intimidating for voters. So you'll need to be aware of that. Um, next slide. So um, people, one, there was one question, how do I help voter who's having a problem inside the voting place? Well, we are staying outside this year. And because of that, there are some things that we will be less able to identify. But part of the issue is that there are restrictions on how many people can be inside a polling place. So if you are in there, that means a voter cannot be in there. And then also it's adding to the risk, both for the voters and yourself. So we're asking people to stay outside, to maintain six feet of distance, even when they're outside and to wear their uh, mask. So you will be talking from, you know, a little bit of ways, but you still should be able to have conversations with voters. Um, there will be other monitors from campaigns. Some of them may be inside that may make, you know, seem unfair to you. And in some ways it is, but again, we don't want to add to the problem. Next slide. So we want to position yourself um, uh, in, in near lines, but safe away or uh, actually drive around and just monitor the situation as best you can. Uh, you'll be able to be more helpful if you can actually socially distance and interact with voters. Um, but that is your choice. We want you to feel safe and to be safe. Certainly, if you don't feel well, you have any symptoms of COVID-19, please do not come to your shift. Uh, let us know. Uh, and if you have to cancel for any reason, we will try to fill the gap. It may not be possible. You can also stay later than your shift if you want. Um, so uh, when you're outside, even driving around, you can report things like long lines or uh, if there's any intimidating uh, kinds of activity that you notice, those are the kinds of things you can still see even from your car. Next slide. So um, optional voter engagement, it's again, if you feel comfortable, and it's just, it's, it, you know, people have been very friendly in the past. Uh, uh, other experience in other states when they've been doing uh, election protection during early voting has been very positive. Um, people have wanted to the help, they've used the help. Uh, I'm sure that will be a little individually based. There are some people that may not feel comfortable being approached. So again, try to maintain that distance. Very simple, just like, <clears throat> Hi, my name is Pam. I'm with Election Protection. I'm here to help voters today. Did you have any problems voting? Uh, did you, you know, if they're, that's on, as they're coming out, uh, how was your voting experience? We actually like good voting experiences as well um, to keep track of. Or do you have any questions before the, the voter is going inside? Uh, so those are the kind of just very simple icebreakers being very friendly and non-threatening. Next slide. So um, you are our eyes and ears and that is, if you're a roving poll monitor and that's something that uh, we, Sophia mentioned at the beginning, but that means you have to report back. 
And reporting back can be in a couple of different ways. Um, the, most, uh, the most clear one is to call the, uh, the hotline or have a voter call the hotline. If they have some basic questions that you don't have time to answer, you can just direct people there. But if we see bigger issues, uh, really long lines, for example, or intimidating behavior, all those things need to be reported um, to your lead and to the command center as quickly as possible. And we will get to you uh, who your lead is, depends on where you are, and we will get you that information as we give you an assignment. Um, data helps the, um, us both identify trends and to, um, to then work on them going forward and uh, in future uh, reforms and provide an accurate picture of what's happening on election day. Next slide. So uh, this is our mobile, I mean, our online form. It's called, it's a jot form. Um, we'll send this to you. It's pretty easy to use, but you do have to sign up for it. You can use it on a web browser or in an app that you can download from uh, either iOS or Android's um, uh, app stores. And uh, it's pretty straightforward. But again, we'll do more information. We're not gonna get into the details of that right now. Next slide. So, um, so here are some of the issues that we'll be having you call the command center directly for, uh, or your lead who will then call the command center. So broken machines, poll workers giving the wrong information, there were, or, um, or telling you how to vote. We had one instance uh, in one of the elections where poll workers were saying, you have to vote yes on this ballot question. Um, intimidating activity of any kind. Um, this has police presence, but you know, police are allowed. In fact, uh, constables are required, which are usually local police uh, officers. They usually are inside the polling location, checking in uh, or out ballots by the, uh, but sometimes they, they are inside. So, you know, use your judgment there. Obviously, if there's anything that is intimidating in the least, let us know. Um, if, uh, if there's a lot of provisional ballots, that'll be hard to tell when you're on the outside. Um, but uh, having the polls close late or early, people having uh, difficulty with accessibility, part of our uh, jot form and our paper forms will be like looking through and just making sure that signs are up about uh, where people are supposed to vote and that the lines are appropriate and that they were in and out um, uh, on the open the late or closed early. Um, those are all really important issues that we need to know about. Next slide. Um, so whenever you report something um, on the job form, you won't be able to go past certain things without answering them. But if you're calling in something to the hotline, since you can't reach your lead or whatever, you really have to have the name of your polling place and, and where it's located. Uh, it just really doesn't help to have a report that doesn't have where it is. So we don't, you know, if you call up and say, hey, I'm in Dorchester and there's a long line, you know, we don't have any way of following up. Um, and it's important to uh, get all the rest. We're also trying to collect voters race. Um, that is, can be um, uh, an op, you know, can be something that's a conversation or observed, but all these are important for our, our data collection on the outside. Next slide. So here are, um, some of the resources we will be sending you, I think we've mentioned these a couple of different times, the Massachusetts Frequently Asked Questions, which is a compendium of all the different uh, answers to these frequently asked questions uh, and resources. It's quite long. Um, Common Cause also has a shorter version of it. Um, 
there, of course, the 1-866-R vote and, and subsidiary hotlines is going to be a critical resource. And we will have a sheet for you on who the lead and command center numbers are so that you can reach us directly. Uh, this is a look at the frequently asked questions. Uh, it is quite long and uh, very detailed. It will really tell you pretty much everything that you need to know. So you'll need to spend some time reviewing it and understanding it to the best of your ability. But remember, you're not alone, as Sophia said over and over again. If you don't know, that's okay. Somebody at the hotline or in the command center will be able to answer. It's more like kicking it up the chain, which is the most important piece. Next slide. Uh, so every year that we've done this program and I've been doing it since 2004 and Sophia has been doing it for uh, a lot of elections as well. Um, we help thousands of voters. Uh, and even here in Massachusetts, we help many different voters and um, by and large, the volunteers that do this have a great time. Uh, even if there's no problems, in fact, that's good. You don't want problems. So if you have a peaceful, relaxing day with Peter saying, oh, it was great. I got in and out. I cast my ballot. There were no problems. That is a good thing. Um, but we want to make sure that every eligible voter can cast a ballot and that there, any problems are minimized. You need to show up on time, uh, do whatever you need to find out the information, and when in doubt, make sure to call your community lead or the command center. And um, for your own self, make sure that you also vote. You can vote during your shift if you happen to be assigned to there, but uh, don't wait because that could, uh, that's unlikely you'll be assigned to your own polling place. The early voting window closes on the 30th. Of course, people can cast a mail ballot all the way through election day itself. Um, so I think there are a bunch of questions and I'm let's- just stop sharing so that we're a little bit larger and we can troubleshoot any questions people have. Um, So Goff, a cumbent office holder drives by and offers coffee and donuts to people online. Should we report that to the captain or command center? Do we ask a voter to self-identify their race? Yes. Um, and then in terms of the drive-by, the line that is actually a fairly common thing, if they're outside of technically the 150-foot line, that is actually fine. The 150-foot line is for electioneering. Um, uh, and so actually they even sometimes let officials in. Um, so I, I don't know. Uh, Sophia, do you think they should call a command center on that? They could call the hotline if they wanted. But So the lawyer in me always tells you guys that my answers to all your questions is it depends, right? One of the things I really rely on the volunteers to do is to use their best judgment. The number one thing we care about on election day is things that are preventing people from voting. So if it's clear to you that voters are uncomfortable, they said that to you, you observe that, or you observe them leaving because of the way that people are interacting with them while they're waiting in line, that should be reported. Other sorts of interactions that don't seem to be having any impact whatsoever on voters does not need to be reported to your lead unless, again, for some reason there are complaints. But you can go ahead and note that on your intake form. So... There's a very long question in the Q&A. Um, so how do you find out if there's been a problem? So um, you won't know all the problems. Uh, you can, if you're standing outside and you see somebody coming out who looks pissed off or just anyone, you can say, hey, how was your voting experience? Did you have any trouble? Is there anything I can help with? Um, all these general kinds of questions, people will want to tell you if they've had a problem because they want, they don't want it to happen to someone else. 
Um, and then we can follow up. See, what we do is then we call the election officials and talk to them about the issues and get them resolved. Um, we've been able to get more poll workers into a, a, a particular place. We've even had to call the Secretary of State in sometimes to, um, to uh, further read them the Riot Act. Um, so we're, we're looking for patterns. And how will you know if someone is, a, is an observer inside the polls? Well, you won't be inside to really tell. And that's also something that is managed by the poll uh, warden. The warden is the election official that's in charge there. I, you know, we're asking people not to go inside, but if there is an issue, I think for that purpose alone, we may say if you're comfortable and you want to report this to the warden after you've talked to us, we may have that conversation with you. Um, because they are the ones that really, uh, they don't always know what their poll workers are doing. And if there is a, you know, sort of systemic problem, often they will be the first line of defense. Um, Sophia, do you want to say anything about that question? No, I think that's good. I know we have a lot of questions in the chat about how you can pick up election protection swag, t-shirts, face masks, things of that nature. When we send an email around to you guys in response to you registering to this program, which will include the slides and the handouts uh, and the links for all of these different things we've discussed, we'll also send you some email addresses for who you can reach out to to try to organize a pickup of any of this swag. I will tell you that unfortunately, most of us are located near the Boston area, so it may be difficult for us to be able to organize drop-offs for places far outside of the Boston area, but we will do our absolute best using our full network to get everybody what they'd like while there are items still available. Yeah, and so different groups are doing different things in terms of getting out their swag. It's all should be the same swag, but um, no. Nah. <laughs> Uh, we have some pickup points at different places, so we're going to uh, try to organize all that. I know ACLU has already gotten out some of theirs. I'm not sure if there's anyone that was referred through that here, but um, we will figure out a way that you will get it. It's hard this year because the mail is unreliable. In the past, we have used the mail, and it's taking so long that we really don't want to do that. Um, there's a good question in here about sort of uh, objectivity, right? Like, how do you determine that a line is long? Like, how many people or what's the length? Again, the lawyer in me says it depends, right? I think what's most important, it may in fact be that many places look like they have long lines. Because again, due to social distancing, there are less people physically inside the polling location than would have traditionally been. They're only allowed a certain number of people in at any given time. What I think is most important is if a line appears to not be moving, if you are an observer at a polling location and you know that people have been waiting 30 plus minutes, that is a good indicator that there is a problem with the line. That does require you to be engaging with voters or at least have some mechanism for trying to determine how long a person's been waiting. But those are the kind of facts that'll help you determine that you should be reporting that to your lead or your command center. It is a little bit subjective, but again, the goal here is to make sure that people aren't leaving. So when a line is so long and it's taking so much time that voters seem to be leaving, that's gonna be the type of thing that we want you to flag. Yeah. I. I... I'm not sure there will be long lines everywhere. There may or I, 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 we have so many people that have voted early or um, by mail this year. I think you will see much shorter lines than is typical on a presidential year, even with um, very record turnout. But anything longer than 30 minutes is too long. Um, and anything approaching it, you could let us know so that we monitor it or you keep an eye on it. Um, we had uh, lines up to three hours in 2012 and early voting made a big impact on that for 2016. Um, but now at 2020, we have both vote by mail and early voting. So hopefully we will see a lot less issues with that problem. 
One thing that I'll tell you guys is that a line sometimes can be an indicator too that there are other problems. And particularly since we're not inside the polling locations this year, a line might be our only tip to know that we need to start talking to voters to see what's going on. Because in past years, some of the places where we've seen the longest lines have been places where the trifecta is happening. And by the trifecta, I mean, there's a broken machine, there's no translation services, and it's a place, it's a polling location that has multiple precincts, meaning precinct one, two, and three are all in this one building, but you have to go into a different entrance or a different part of the building to determine where you should vote. And that confusion requires back, well, creates backup. Sometimes you have a place that has all three of those things happening at the exact same time. And one of the consequences of that is a long line. So one of the things that the long lines might flag for us is that some of the things like that are happening inside the polling location. And by engaging with voters outside after they finish voting, you might be able to glean some of that information. So long lines can be important for us to know, but it also can be help us know that we should be troubleshooting other problems. Um. So how would a voter know to approach us if we're sitting in our cars? Um, you know, uh, the car magnet, I don't think says I can help, does it? I can't remember what it says, but it has the, the number there. So they, it, it's promoting the hotline. They can see that. Um, in fact, you know, people wouldn't know if you're sitting in your car to approach you. Um, you could put up a little sign, you know, that says, have questions, I can help. If you want, you can, you know, do your own homemade sign. Um, and if you want to stay in your car, that might be a nice thing to do. One thing I'll say is that assuming that the weather is decent on November 3rd and you are comfortable engaging with voters in a socially distanced way while wearing a mask, I'd highly encourage you not to be in your car. I'd certainly try to recommend that you're walking around outside of the polling location so you can engage with as many voters as possible. Because again, the more people you talk to, the more information you're going to gather. And you are our eyes and ears. So if you're not gathering that information, then we're not collecting that information. So we'd highly recommend for people who, ought, who do want to engage with voters, you be outside of your car. In my opinion, I sort of envision a person being inside their car if they're only comfortable just collecting data on that electronic intake form about issues that they can witness or observe externally to the polling location, and that's it. Um, but I'm hoping that if you are willing to engage with a volunteer that you will actually be outside of your car on the ground. So we have another question, which we have actually not talked about, um, which is that you have a bumper sticker on your car and you have, therefore, is it okay to put out the, uh, the car magnet or not? So you have a, you have a Biden bumper sticker on the back of your car and then you have, you know, your sticker, is that okay? Um, <laughs> ideally, it would be better if you could cover that bumper sticker up, but <laughs> we're trying to we're trying to make sure to protect the integrity of a, of a nonpartisan program. Right. I mean, one of the things that allows us to all give back on Election Day, despite any of our personal political preferences, is that we believe that everybody who has the right should be able to cast a ballot. And that's what brings us together. And that's what makes us do this program. In some ways, it overcomplicates sort of muddies the water a little bit when we start to talk about our political parties. It makes me think about the family conversations over the Thanksgiving dinner, right? Uh, and we're trying to keep that out of election protection. So we would ask you, again, and you're going to sign a code of conduct to use your best judgment to do everything you can to keep the nonpartisan component of this program sacred, because that really ensures that A, everybody's comfortable participating. We always have people who volunteer. But B, it also makes sure that the Secretary of the Commonwealth is willing to take Pam and my phone calls when they know that we're not out here actually campaigning for a particular party or a ballot question. Because we're neutral, we actually have this pipeline to be able to resolve problems. And you can potentially cause us to lose that if we make them upset and they feel like we're engaging in partisan activity but have promoted ourselves as nonpartisan. So um, one question is, well, what do we do about bathroom breaks? And uh, <laughs> that is a good question. Uh, actually, bathrooms are not in every polling place. 
uh, and you do not have to have access to them. If they are there, you can go try to find them. They are not typically in the voting area itself. They are somewhere else. Um, but many locations have no bathrooms. So you're going to just have to try to figure that out. And it may, you know, may be hard. It is hard uh, to find bathrooms these days. Um, so I don't have any great, uh, <laughs> great wisdom other than uh, use your resourcefulness and uh, don't, don't overhydrate. <laughs> I love this. There's a good question for people. If you are really uncomfortable about engaging in face-to-face -face interactions, would you be better suited by perhaps doing the social media monitoring versus the field program? Again, I know I'm like a broken record, but it depends, right? This is a program that's trying to create lots of opportunities that whoever wants to participate can. You have to know yourself. You have to know what you are most comfortable doing. We have record-breaking numbers of volunteers this year. I'm so excited to see it. It's the biggest program that I've ever been involved in in Massachusetts for election protection. But we can always use more people, and we can use them anywhere. So if you prefer to do the social media monitoring, if you feel like that is a better way for you to give back and you want to switch programs, not a problem. Send me an email. We'll get it done. There's two more trainings for the social media monitoring program this Sunday, the 25th, and on November 1st. So if you're interested in switching to that program, you're welcome to do it. But know that the field program is sort of the core component of election protection. It is your only opportunity to really engage with voters on the ground. And I think it's one of the most rewarding experiences you can have to spend your time helping others. Um, that said, it doesn't work for everybody. So you have to decide what works for you and we will make sure to accommodate you. So, and just on that, there may be more social media training, media monitoring training scheduled. Um, if there are a bunch of people, there is also the voter outreach um, and rapid response. That is a national program. It isn't specific to Massachusetts. We did uh, call, uh, I'm sorry, text bank about 150,000 Massachusetts voters with information about the hotline and about um, getting out to vote. But um, this is a really good program. It's a lot of fun. People really enjoy it. And we hope to see you on election day. Yeah. Well, thanks everybody for participating. We, again, after this program, we are gonna send you around a link to the recording for this as soon as the BBA makes that available as well as all of the resources that we discussed and contact information for how you can talk with someone to be able to pick up some election protection gear. So all that information will be coming to you shortly and looking forward to a really robust and exciting program again for election protection 2020. Thanks everybody, really appreciate it.